Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us today on Friday, March 19th is when we're airing this episode. My name is Jennifer Mulholland, and this is Jeff Shuck, and we are the hosts of Plenty for Everyone. We are so grateful to be joined today by two of our favorite people. We get to call them our beloved clients, Elizabeth Carey, the CEO at Star Commonwealth, and Derek Allen, the COO, Chief Operating Officer at Star Commonwealth in Michigan. Couldn't be more elated that we get to share the next 45 minutes in conversation with them and allowing you all to hear a bit of their story, their rich history, their purpose, and their amazing mission for creating positive experiences for children and families so they can flourish. It's just truly a remarkable organization, and we're grateful that you're going to be able to hear their story and how they've been able to navigate these times with purpose-driven strategy. Jeff, you want to set up a little bit about what we did with them and why we're having them on? I would love to. And first, let me say, if you're watching, we have this cool radio look. We're trying new microphones. (laughs) So we're just really styling. Tune in next episode for huge headphones that we'll be wearing. And would also say you might hear crunching in the background and that's not me eating. My puppies are here with me on this Friday. And so it's lovely. Jen, we're actually recording on the 19th of March. You're probably listening to this in mid-April, I think. Or actually, I have no idea when you're listening to this. But whenever you're listening to this, we're probably engaged with Star Commonwealth now in some way, shape, or form. And maybe to give a little bit of background and to answer Jen's question, I just start by saying we're not having Star Commonwealth on because they're clients. Their clients of ours, because they're wonderful people with really great leadership and strategic challenges, and it's it's just so rewarding to work with people like this. They first reached out to us in 2018, and we'll let Elizabeth tell that story, but if you've listened to the podcast more than once, you've heard us talk about Meridian, which is what we call our process of helping organization design purpose-driven strategies. And Star hired us back then to go through the Meridian process with them, which probably took Jen three or four months and included a wide variety of stakeholders, including their staff and their entire board. And it was been one of our just joyful engagements and a great success story. And we were overjoyed when we heard back from Elizabeth a couple months ago saying, hey, we've emerged from the pandemic stronger, but with another set of questions we need to consider. So we just re-engaged with them about a month ago, and we don't really get into that in this conversation, but it's been so fun, Jen, to just be a part of their ongoing story, to be, I think, an active participant in creating their future with them. 
Yeah. And truly, I think when we define what a conscious leader is, and that's certainly one of our intents is to serve conscious leaders who make a difference in this world, that they embody that. They're so awake and aware and committed to balancing the intellect and the intuition, the head and the heart. And what inspires me, not only about the process that we help them go through, but what they did with that and bringing these beautiful visions, as you'll hear Derek talk about, like the anchor of who they are, their identity that is so true to their past, but so relevant to the present and the future that unwaveringly they were able to navigate times that they couldn't see. And for them to balance, I think the business acumen that you'll hear Elizabeth talk about with feeling, with genuine values of healing and seeing children and each other as innately whole, that mindset comes forth in their curriculum and their training and in the services that they offer nationally and worldwide. And every time we get to be in conversation with them and even our latest interactions with the board, it's so inspiring to be in this conversation of seeing organizations slow down to really architect what matters most so that they can pave an agile, responsive approach to healing and to transforming themselves and the world. And it sounds cliche to say, but you'll hopefully hear that come forth in their care and how they went about bringing this beautiful vision to life, grounded and rooted in business, in financial decisions and tasks that ground the whole thing to come to life. So I just feel really honored, Jeff, as I know you do, and super grateful that we get to create friends out of these professional relationships that we get to be in conversation with and hopefully share a lifelong relationship going forward. Yeah. And this is a series of conversations. If you're joining for the first time on the podcast, the last few episodes we've had people that we've worked with and the content's been really, really different, you know, whether it's City of Hope and being at the leading edge of cancer care or Matt Navarro and being in of global sporting goods executive or Stark Hellman Wealth and dealing with trauma-informed care. And we hope that the content's interesting to you. I know it's always interesting to us, but what's even more interesting is the commonalities underlying that, you know, the substance of what is it like to be a conscious leader? What is it like to be a conscious leader during times of change? What are ways that we can find passion in our work, which is a topic that really comes out. So if the terminology that they're using about their institution doesn't resonate with you, we invite you to listen underneath that to what you share in common with them, which is people who are making a difference in the world and want to engage others in that same effort. So just a lovely conversation. And I think afterwards, Jen will come back and have a chance to riff a bit about what we each took away. <laughs> I know we could have used 45 more minutes. So we're going to have a lot to say afterwards. So we hope you stick around for that. Yes. Too. And we'll absolutely have them back. So enjoy the conversation. So welcome Elizabeth and Derek 
From up the road from me in Albion, Michigan, it's so great to have some Midwesterners on this podcast right down the highway from us. And maybe that's a place to start about talking a little bit about how we met you and what you do. As we said in the intro, Star Commonwealth is an amazing place and it's an amazing presence, but the place is part of the presence. That's one of the things we learned three years ago when we when we visited campus. So maybe tell us a little bit about what Star Commonwealth does, and it would be great to understand how you both got involved there as well. Well, I can kick it off, and uh, Derek does it just as well as I do, so he can add what I miss. But um, Star Commonwealth was founded by a entrepreneurial rebel, is kind of the way we've thought about him, in 1913, uh, Floyd Starr. And he had a belief system that was extremely uncommon during the time. And that was that he believed that there was no such thing as a bad boy. That was his language in about 1910. And he actually got into kind of an argument in a college uh, course in psychology because at the time there was a deep belief that depending on who you were born to and where you lived and what environment you were in, you were probably born bad. And there were training schools set up specifically for your life course. And he absolutely did not believe that. And so by 1913, at the age of 30, he and his wife and his baby daughter decided to take on showing the world one kid at a time that if a child who had been discarded, discounted and considered bad could be in an environment of positive experiences and love and structure that they can and would be a lovely human being who could be successful in their lives. And he took in his first two kids in Albion, Michigan. He bought 40 acres and all that was standing on that property was a barn. And so that little family, two boys from Detroit, actually, and his little family lived in a barn until they could order a home from Sears and Roebuck's catalog. And they built it themselves. It is still standing. And it's a beautiful reminder of the very first home built on our campus to demonstrate to the young people that they were loved and worthy, and then to demonstrate to the world that there is goodness and greatness in all kids. So 107, 108 years later, we have had the opportunity to learn from kids. They've taught us over a century of what it is that they need to flourish. And so, yes, we have had lots of experts during that time. We've had psychologists and and top educational experts and really incredible leaders who then generated programs and protocols and treatment that actually was specific around being intentionally positive instead of taking a negative approach to change whatever they saw in kids that needed to be fixed. Maybe it was a behavior issue or other issues, but instead to create models for treatment based on positive reinforcement and positive relationships that actually changed kids' lives and allowed them to flourish. So in 100 years, yes, we still have our historic campus with that original home and barn. It now has 40 buildings on it, multiple homes and schools and opportunity to serve kids in a variety of ways. But we've also moved into our working in community. Our emphasis about 40 years ago was to move upstream 
and not wait until kids were in dire situations and ended up on our beautiful campus so that we could begin to do some work with them, but to move upstream into families, into schools, into communities. And so for about 40 years, we've been running community-based programs and we've also been taking our expertise and bottling it up into tangible tools for other professionals. We knew that we were doing what was working for kids and families and we needed to share it. And so about 40 years ago, we began trying to figure out how you teach others to do this work. They used to come, that was a time when people traveled to come see our campus, come see the programming in action in a day when we really did that. And then about 20 years ago, we started hosting big conferences, again, in ways to bring people together to learn. And of course, about five years ago, just technology itself allowed us to begin to provide those tools and trainings and coaching experiences through online resources. And boy, did we upgrade our technology about three, four years ago, and we didn't realize we were preparing for a world where that was going to be the most critical way to reach adults and professionals and kids and make sure that the goodness and the greatness in them was built up and um, sometimes restored and building resilience so that they could truly flourish. That's our history. Derek, is, as our chief operating officer, has in the last three to four years really led the charge on ensuring that everything we deliver is in that tangible, hands-on, tool-based experience, whether that's behavioral health directly with kids or it's training other adults and professionals, but ensuring that it's really, really targeted and useful. So you don't come to us for the philosophy necessarily. You buy into our philosophy that there's goodness and greatness in all, but then you really need the tools to be able to change your own work, your own practice, your own interactions with your own children, your therapy sessions that you run so that they're all positive. That's amazing. Derek, we know that you have a special perspective on that too. Would you like to to compliment what Elizabeth said? I mean, you were right in the sweet spot, as she mentioned about the online curriculum and would just also add that your leaders in the space of training school districts to embody this curriculum for resilience and trauma around a positive environment. So could you expand on some of those initiatives that you're doing? Sure. Well, first of all, wow, that's why Elizabeth is the president. I've listened to her share that story many times over the years, and it never gets old. The history and the the value system that that Elizabeth referenced, the the core beliefs that we hold as an organization are so, so foundational to every bit of the work that we're doing that I'm going to share a little bit about. And I say that not to say that other people's aren't, but the way that that belief system has been integrated into every conversation we have, into the work that we do. I know that at Plenty, you all like water metaphors and as part of the meridian model, like the water thing. And so I think of our value system as an anchor in a way that has kept our organization right where we need to be, even when there are storms, right? And in the past year, if there's ever been (laughs) a time where there's been turbulent water, it has been now. And that anchor has kept us um, right in our sweet spot, right where we're supposed to be um, serving children, families, and communities. And that value system 
matters to me on a personal and professional level. You know, I when I get to speak to professionals on behalf of Star Commonwealth, it's typically educators, counselors, sometimes law enforcement. I often share that my really cool job title isn't chief operating officer, it's being Sam's dad. It's my son who will be 12 in June is is my reason for being. And we teach at Star about obviously our founder Floyd's belief system, but a lot of other pioneers in this field of resilience and in positive youth development. And one of those is Yuri Bronfenbrenner, famous Russian-born American developmental psychologist who said that every single child needs at least one adult who is irrationally crazy about him or her. And I often share that, you know, that for me, that's my mother. I mean, if there's anyone who's irrationally crazy about me, it's her. And actually today happens to be her birthday. So happy birthday, mom. But that I share that with educators and with others. And to your point, Jennifer, we're, we're doing a lot of work in the education space these days because every kid needs that and not every kid has it, right? Like, unfortunately, the sad reality is that not every parent has what they need the skills, maybe the knowledge, the resources to be there for their kid in the way that they need to be. Some parents are absent for whatever reason, right? Of no fault of their own. Some parents or caregivers choose not to be there, right? In the place that they they are. So so you have so many children across our country and and of course around the world who need adults who are going to be there for them. And as an organization, though we still do direct service with kids. We still have an arm of the organization that does that very impactful, important work. And I I love that team and the work that they do. But we also, as an organization, as Elizabeth said, we, we made a strategic and conscious decision a few decades ago to say, okay, how do we help empower and equip professionals around the world with the knowledge that we know works with kids, right? And so much of that is relationship-based. So much of that is about human connection. And so now I'm proud. I'm proud of the programs we have that are impacting school systems in virtually every state in the country and to some degree internationally, helping those educators who see kids every single day, right, understand how to build those connections and foster resilience in the kids they serve. Oh my gosh. I love everything you're talking about. And we so resonate with the idea that everyone deserves love and everyone is innately well. You know, we could spend three hours just talking about those concepts. One of the things that you've, you kind of mapped out for us in doing the wonderful intro is that I think some of the groups that we've worked with in Meridian really have lost their way. To your point, Derek, they've lost their anchor and they need just help finding it. That was not the case with Star. You've known who you are for 100 years, and there is such a story thread back to 1913. And so it was really interesting in starting to engage with you three or four years ago about a future none of us could quite see. And I wonder if you would take us back to that point in time. You have such a strong sense of who you are. There's such history. It's literally all around you. And you already had a sense of kind of where the curriculum space was going. So maybe take us back, Elizabeth, to that first phone call. And we drove up to Albion and he said, I just want to talk with you about getting your perspective and what was happening in the organization at that time. It was a very interesting time. So I had become the CEO about two years earlier, and I took over as just being the fifth president in a hundred years. 
So our founder served for 60 of those basically. And then we had three presidents after that, all who served very long stints and all whom worked for Uncle Floyd. So long legacy and history. And I kind of came in as an outsider. I had not worked at Star my whole career. I came in as a chief strategy officer, spent five years really helping the organization around where is it that we're going, not where we've been. As you said, our history was tight and we knew what our legacy was, but what were the business experiences around us? Where was our field that we operate in going? What did we do really, really well? And then how could we expand on that to find our place? And we used a very traditional business model to do that. We used a consulting firm that helped us with our sales funnels and our funding streams and made sure that we had really tight models about our unit rate of pay and unit rate of expense and each return on investment. I'm a social worker by nature, but absolutely loved working with on that business model because it made us align on the business operations. Unfortunately, the field around us in our traditional program of residential treatment was changing pretty dramatically. By the late 1990s to the early 2000s, the United States in general was beginning to find different ways to meet the needs of kids and families. And they were shifting funding, appropriately so, to get at that upstream that we just talked about. And so we were getting hit pretty hard on the largest revenue side of what we did. We had multiple campuses in a couple of states where we did this work and they were all financially struggling, not mission struggling, financially struggling. And so as I took over as CEO, we were running some very large deficits, multi-year systemic deficits, because everything we were trying to impact those deficits weren't necessarily working because the field was moving faster in the direction than we could implement change. So the board's directive for me as their new CEO was balance the budget. That was the core, stop losing money. So we spent my first year and a half to two years just dismantling. I mean, we were... (laughs) It was a very painful time. We had to make really tough decisions about core quality things that were changing people's lives that if we ran them all, this organization would not have the resources to stay open for another century. And so we really started making those really tough decisions. And by the time I called you guys, what had happened was we had seen just the beginning of our first balanced budget. And we were feeling the light again, is one way to think about that. We were hopeful then about now that we've made some of these really tough economic decisions about programs, operations, and people, how do we turn the lights back on in a full, exciting way? And I had a board member who actually, I had not heard of Plenty Consulting, who sent me actually one of your white papers and said, you know, maybe what we need instead of the new business model is we need a reconnection to our heart and to our purpose. And from that, maybe that'll get us all excited to be able to progress forward. So my reaching out to you was a really pivotal time for the organization because we had made some really, really painful decisions and we were standing at a place where those were implemented and they were working financially, but now where could we go? That is what led us to you guys. And I won't forget the December day you drove up. We'd just gotten something like eight or inches of snow or something. And 
The long trip too from Park City, Utah. Jennifer in particular. So Derek was not our chief operating officer. I had two colleagues. It was just the three of us that made all of those just really tough decisions. And so the three of us were dedicated to getting us through that. And we had just done it, but we're we're tired and we were wondering what the future was going to hold. And so it was perfect alignment to reach to you guys about this concept, which I don't think we had ever really embraced, which is there's plenty for And that for us was kind of a, what do you mean? I've done all the competitor models. I know exactly the limited funding that is available. Right. You must be kidding. There's plenty. There's not plenty, but it began to shift the way we were thinking and began to shift the way we started to think about our engagement with you and then with our board and our staff. And we totally buy into that concept today. It doesn't mean we don't know who our competitors are and we aren't concerned about our return on investment and our unit costs, but now we do them aligned with the reason we exist, our value systems and our passion. And we see a world that we could create. Love that. And remember those early moments where there was a bit of wide eyes of what? (laughs) How could that be possible? But truly, you know, when we define how we describe plenty, this idea that there is enough to go around. So that kind of blows away the competitive model that if there's more than enough to go around, we all have a place to serve and all have a place to do what we're great at because there's a demand for it. And we can share in that demand. And then the idea that there, you have enough. So you have access to plenty of resources. You have access to knowledge, to your intuition, to knowing. And then followed by one of the most important definitions is that you are enough, which goes right to the heart of the ethos of Star and Floyd's vision that you're worthy. You're enough as you are. You're good. You have everything in your innate potential to thrive and to become what our job is to create the environment so you can flourish. And that is directly tied to your mission at STAR. From that place, maybe Derek, would you mind, we had a lot of inside jokes around how we facilitated the process, but for people listening who have no clue when we say Meridian or what that process was at Plenty, we say it is our purpose we do help design purpose-driven strategy. So it is very focused on strategic planning, but from a purpose-centered approach, a heart-centered approach, an inside-out approach. Maybe in your own words, take us through what that looked like for, for you personally, as well as for STAR with the work that we did together. To create the anchor. I think like going back to that anchor is so important. Yeah. So I'll be honest, meeting plenty the first day or two, I had no idea what you guys were doing. (laughs) It it was uh, a different approach than I was used to. It's a different approach. And as a, you know, I, as Elizabeth mentioned, I was not our chief operating officer at the time. I was serving in a, I think I was in a director level role at that time, kind of providing leadership to our professional training and coaching and consulting arm. And so I've done a fair amount of training and consulting and public speaking. Stylistically, I certainly 
was not aligned with what was happening, especially the first day. Back to the metaphors, I did not see the map to the new world that you guys apparently had in the back of your minds. And I also, all of you know me well enough to know, I'm a, a bit opinionated and passionate about our work and about what I think we should be doing. And I'm not very patient. However, what I will say is that I was so... I mean, honestly, on a personal level, it might sound cheesy, but I was transformed through the process myself because I had to just give up control, which is hard for me, and have faith (laughs) in, in all of you and in our team, right, who were actively engaged. Because once I started to see what we were putting up on sticky notes and what we were what we were closing our eyes and thinking about and what we were saying. Once I started to see that materialize into something that was truly, I mean, beautiful. I still have some of the big sticky notes that we put up on the wall saved on my camera roll on my iPhone right now from those years ago, because what emerged out of all of us and in a really truly organic sort of way was powerful. And back to the point that it wasn't that we didn't know who we were. It wasn't that we didn't have some sort of foundational set of beliefs or values that we were operating from, but there was a sense of renewal that was needed after the challenging times that Elizabeth talks about that I wasn't the chief operating, but I lived through it as an employee of the organization who deeply loved the organization and watched what Elizabeth and her team were going through at the time. And we needed that renewal. We needed that sense again of the hope of possibility and that sense of what we can accomplish and I don't know if that's what you wanted, Jennifer, but I mean, yes, I was not sure about you folks, (laughs) but you won me over and I, and and I'm, and I love where we came to, you know, as a result of that work. If I recall, you made that clear too, a couple of times in the process. We, that was not hidden. (laughs) Yeah. No, I love that. That's just really wonderful to hear. And I think one little aside I don't think we ever come in. I know we don't ever come in with a map in our back pocket. We come in with with blank parchment paper and we trust that there's a Derek in the room who's got a compass and there's Elizabeth who has a pencil and there's an Eric who's seen the mountains and there's a Randy who's seen this big lake over here. And we know that together we're going to fill in the piece of paper. And, And I think the other thing I'd say is, and then once we have a map, a map doesn't do the journey. Like a map doesn't walk us anywhere. And that's, I think, a real, real gratifying part of the engagement for us and our engagement now is having time to walk that walk together, because it's also not just about putting things on those pieces of paper and then saying, well, that felt good. It's about actually making it happen. And so I wonder if, Jen, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask a follow up to this process, which is we spent a few weeks together over time and got the board engaged and got other stakeholders engaged. And it was a rich process. And we came out with very robust goals. And none of those, by the way, anticipated a global pandemic. But when we touch base with you, I think when we reacquainted a few months ago, say six months ago, we were stunned at the progress you had made to those goals. So again, put the pandemic aside for a second. 
maybe tell us coming out of the process, you know, you have this great experience. There's all these post-it notes. Everyone feels good. And that's traditionally when the processes fall apart and everyone kind of reverts back to how they were. And our hope with Meridian is that doesn't happen because people made the map together. So maybe take us like what happened after we left and you had this huge plan you had to execute. And maybe just to clarify, I think for the people that are listening, that there literally was a map. There was a blueprint that is an actual outcome of the process. We say the process is the product. So the process going through it was so valuable. But the anchor that you referenced, Derek, in our opinion, you you constantly came back to that roadmap to say in a decision, are we on or are we off? How does this inform us to tell us where what we do and what we don't? And that's the intent of the outcome of the process is that it's actually helps you make decisions when you can't see what decisions you may need to make. And so maybe from that place, how you were able to use that or come back to that, your identity, your anchor in lieu of a lot of changes, not with COVID, but you had other external situations that created challenges for decision-making along the way. Derek, I'll start. You have keys to much of this. So we left the process with you guys with our blueprint that was a perfect articulation of who we were. I mean, I, I agree with Derek. We felt totally rejuvenated about our the possibility, the world we wanted to create, the purpose and why we all worked at this organization and what mission we really had. And then the values process that we went through was it was pretty magical because we took those and did a deep education across the full organization. So multiple team meetings and full staff meetings and everybody got handouts and they hung them in their cubicles and they could look at the words all the time because what we were gearing up for as a former chief strategy officer was now to put that into five goals we wanted to accomplish. So top five goals. And then we broke those goals, each of them into three major outcomes under each goal. And then we broke those into tasks and had timeframes associated with all of them. And so one of the roles that Derek got to play was how far are we on all our tasks and all our time? Like we had a, a very detailed process, but it wasn't just task oriented. It wasn't, we're doing this because someone told us to do this. Everybody on the teams wrote those tasks. So if this goal related to your team and your, um, or two teams together, how are you going to get there? What are the things that you need to do and your team needs to do and the organization needs to do? And when do you think you can get those done? So we ended up with this incredible detailed map. But what it meant is that everything everyone was doing was aligned with the blueprint. So we were able to not do things that didn't fit into one of those strategic goals that we were headed for. We were able, there was enough flexibility in the goals that when a new idea came up, we could run it through there and go, oh no, this fits. This We need to add this now and start figuring out what the steps are going to be. The positioning part of Meridian was critical. So as we learned how to find our triangle, our sweet spot for what, what we really are and what we bring, we created an innovation 
and Derek led much of this, an innovation pipeline process. We have some creative, super creative human beings who were already in the mindset of, let's do everything. And so a new idea would pop up and it was like, absolutely, that fits mission. Let's go. We can do that. We can do that. And we were stretching everybody super thin. And by about, was it six months? No, it was a year. About a year into the strategic plan, I personally got feedback from Derek and others that we were driving too hard, that we were aligned. Everything we were doing was aligned, but it was too hard and too fast. And people were feeling tired and not as excited about it. And so I took that very seriously. It was, it was hard to hear because I was also trying to make sure the finances and the other parts of the organization were, were tight. And I was carrying big loads with me. And I knew that that meant that was bleeding onto everybody else. And it wasn't my intention to do that. So hearing it was really important. I then could shift and we stepped back with all the teams and said, okay, what can we do slower? What pieces need our attention more priority and less priority versus we've got it, we've got it all, we're running. So amazingly, 18 months into what we were looking at about a two-year plan, by about 18 months in, we had about 85 to 90% of everything we had wanted to accomplish done. <laughs> and we had also, we got that done even with the step back, even with the self-care pieces that were necessary for me personally and that were necessary for our teams. And we built in lots of fun. That would be the other piece of this. We do like to have fun. So it isn't all business. And one thing we did that I just have to tell you guys about is that we took our five core values. So our core values before working with you guys in Meridian were very corporate. They were like fairness and responsibility and compassion. They fit us, but they were they were businessy. We came up with five words that we turned into action statements that we are living and breathing. But one of the things we did in our first year is we created awards that staff could nominate each other for, for living one of those values. Our values are we see greatness, we find courage, we foster healing, we promote health, and we are oneness. So I could nominate someone for living and breathing our oneness of humankind as an example in something they've done. Someone else nominated somebody for seeing greatness, somebody else for finding courage. And we had an all staff meeting where I got to read to individuals what all of their colleagues said about them and how they lived the values. And we were all crying. I mean, it was certainly people got some awards for that but it was across the board and it was deep and personal and, and just magical. And I don't think we realized putting all the tasks together, putting all the timeframes together, that also when we were owning those and living them, how deep they were gonna ingrain themselves in us. And then that helps us make good business decisions. So we did take the business model of putting tasks and timelines and accountability in place, but we really just began to deeply live and every meeting we hold, including every board meeting, now has our vision statement, our mission statement, and our core values. We are intentional about our position descriptions. We actually rewrote everybody's job descriptions to align with our new language and belief systems that could be more tangible for people. So it did take a ton of work to implement but that was the sole reason for doing this work. Mm -hmm. How could this take us somewhere? 
Yeah. Well, and I love that, that you just meant the sole reason, right? What's the sole expression of the business of the spirit behind what you do? And there is something really magical that we believe in, in this invitation to truly walk the talk. And I think a lot of movements or organizations, they start with genuine, pure passion, a true desire of care. Along the way, the business tasks trump and take kind of the soul or the heart or the passion out of the work, right? It just over time, it kind of tends to dominate the intellect, the numbers, the metrics, the dollar amount of the strategic plan of the goal. And would really say that you all are modeling the way of what it looks like to be those values and to make decisions from that place that is core. And that is sustainable. And that sets you up to create an empowered culture where the come from, so you can't handhold how many employees do you have right now or how many at that time did you? Um, probably 50. 50, yeah. And then you had all your other external staff, right? So we we're talking 350. 300. Yeah, 300. So you can't possibly tell them all what to do and how to do it, right? I mean, that's you can't micromanage to that level. And if you do, you're not going to be successful. The way to lead with conscious leadership and empowerment is to say, okay, we trust you to live and breathe these values. Make that connection to them that it's not something from top down, you should do this, but they genuinely care. And that sets up a more agile culture to deal with what's coming that we can't see, or that helps us surrender the control, Derek, that you kind of mentioned early on of like, I'm going to trust my staff to be able to come from this place of alignment to make decisions that they're empowered to decide upon. And maybe Derek, taking what Elizabeth just set up, like you then went into a pandemic, you went into a lot of change and coming from that place of modeling the way, being the way, if you will, being those values, not they're not on the on a piece of paper, they don't sit in a board document, they're not archived, but you brought them forward and revisited. How is that serving you now in this post-pandemic, hopefully, of how you were to navigate that? And Jeff, I think you want to make a point on that before we kind of turn it to Derek. No, let's hear from Derek on this because there's a part of the story and I want to be mindful of Elizabeth's time about us meeting again and the world has changed greatly. So maybe Derek, if you wouldn't mind responding to Jen's question and then we can. So first of all, let me just say that if there's one good thing that Elizabeth and I, one thing that Elizabeth and I are really good at, it's hiring amazing people. So our, we are, we often talk about how lucky we are to have the team that we have. We have some just amazing human beings who happen to be, we have collected a lot of overachievers who like to work hard, who like to set high expectations, who are passionate, who are driven to do the work that we do. And another Meridian Water thing, it's a perfect storm, right? When you bring together those individuals who have that kind of drive within the alignment that you all helped us with, right? Because then what it was, was it wasn't just 
people who like, like to work hard and achieve things. But now we all had a very common shared direction that we were headed in. And it was something we all believe in so much and so strongly that then, to Liz's point, saying no to anything was really hard, right? So everyone's just moving in that direction because we see the possibility, we see what we can accomplish together. And so to Elizabeth's credit, her being willing to think about, okay, how do we do this in a measured way that takes care of all of us and still achieve what we set out to do is, is important. So then when we went into all of a sudden there's a global pandemic, right? We were at that place of we've achieved most of our strategic plan. We're going to start thinking about what the next phase is. And then boom, the whole world changes, shifts on its axis. And so we, again, to Elizabeth's credit with her leadership, we took a pause and we said, okay, we probably need to create a pandemic strategic plan. And that pandemic strategic plan was still rooted, right? Still anchored by what we said is our, our purpose in this place, right? So there's this storm now, but our anchor is going to hold us right here. We still exist, right? To lead with courage, to create positive experiences so that all children, families, and communities flourish. And so from that, we said, so how do we accomplish that in the wake of a global pandemic? And again, to Elizabeth's credit, the very first goal became, how do we take care of each other first, right? Because we won't be able to take care of those we serve unless we take care of each other. And so that became the first goal of strategic plan is how do we wrap around each other who we love and care about deeply and support each other through this and then go into, and how do we help the world deal with the current trauma of this pandemic and the trauma tsunami that is likely coming, right? And that's where we implemented from there. So yeah, I don't know, Jeff, you, you had something you wanted to. No, it's, it's lovely. And we're going to have you back because there's so many, you're giving, there's so much advice. And I think after this, Jen and I'll do a recap and we'll have a chance to bring out some of the lessons you're, you're giving us about inclusion, about embracing optimism, about drawing the circle wider. But I want to give you all the last word before we lose you for today, Elizabeth, as you look at where you stand now in this incredibly optimistic, vibrant, resilient organization that's that's yet again embarking on change optimistically, what advice would you have for other conscious leaders out there who are trying to find their way through what for all of us has been a difficult year? I don't know if I'm so good at giving advice. I seek advice regularly. So um, I think the most challenging part right now for leaders is ensuring that you have strong, healthy relationships with other leaders. Because if it wasn't for Derek, if it wasn't for colleagues that I used to work with or colleagues I know around the country that I can just call, that I can email, that I can reach out to, I wouldn't have known what to do. And I probably would be curled up in a ball somewhere thinking I, ca I, I can't do this anymore. But because we are relationship-based as human beings, and then because we know the science behind relationships, that they actually help you thrive, that right now I think is the most important thing for leaders is making sure that you have your tribe, that you've got your people who are going to build 
up your optimism and your strength, who are going to problem solve with you, who are going to face the next crisis. And as Derek said, we have an incredible internal team of people that do that. But sometimes you have to go outside to get that and bring it back into your own organization. So I think that's my advice right now is, is do that reaching out to others that can help you manage through this. Beautifully said. And so important. Derek, would you like to answer the same question before we say goodbye? I joke with Elizabeth and now I joke with you, Jennifer and Jeff, about some big divine plan or something or purpose and me believing in just some good coincidences. I've happened (laughs) to find myself in a role, in a job at an organization that is 100% aligned with who I am and the journey I've been on in my life. And so it makes, even in hard times, even in turbulent waters like 2020, when you've got a hard job, right? I love my job, right? But even even on a hard day, I'm so aligned with what I'm doing that there's never a moment where it feels like work. And so I get, I know I'm lucky in that, that there's so many people who don't have jobs that don't feel like work. But if you can find that, if you can find that place where you're at, it just makes all the difference. And yeah, that's my wish. I guess my hope for all leaders is that they can find that place because that's, that's when you flourish. But I just say, um, this has been a ton of fun. So yeah, I'll do that. I'll chat with you guys anytime. (laughs) We'd love to have you. There's so much to unpack, especially around the, the tsunami of trauma and how, how leaders like you can help communities all over the country heal. And your core kind of tagline is driven to heal and really admire that you put that lens and a microscope on yourselves first on how do you help each other heal in personally so you can heal others. And we're in that crisis now where a lot of people are not filling their own cup, but they're running with uh, empty gas, if you will, on a hamster wheel that's really fast and not aligned. And so that is the intent is we all have a place We all have alignment and those questions are worth asking yourself of what do I really care about? Why am I here? What is my talent? How do I serve that's, you know, that can serve myself and others. So more to say, we are just so grateful to share the time. We're so psyched to continue working with you on this next phase of strategic planning and continue being the amazing humans and rock stars and leaders that you are. It's certainly been one of the highlights of our careers is working with Star Commonwealth. Yeah. And it's fun for us to say, we'll see you soon. Yes, (laughs) we will. Hopefully not just on Zoom. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thank thank you you so much. That was really great. There were so many paths I wanted to walk down that we didn't have a chance to walk down. So I'm just going to take some momentum and tee one up, which I think I intend this to be the slowest pitch up the middle that you hit way out of the park. But you know, when she was talking about Floyd Star, I can't help but getting choked up about the story of this person. Think of this in 1913 and being a college graduate, and having the epiphany then that there's no such thing as a bad child, which even today sounds like, for some people, a groundbreaking idea. But a 100 years ago, how 
groundbreaking that was. And it's so moving. And having gone to see the story and met his descendants, I can tell you it, he truly was far ahead of his time. And so the slow pitch up the middle, Jen, is it reminds me of two other important people to plenty, people we've never met but think highly of. And they're the twin Sydneys. And one is Sydney Farber, who is the founder of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is a longtime friend of Plenty. And Sidney Farber back in the 1940s said about cancer, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. And you know, in the 1940s, nobody was saying that about cancer because when you got diagnosed, you were already stage four and you died immediately because that's what the medicine was. And he was a groundbreaking person and said, just like Floyd, no, that's not true. And people called him crazy. And so I, I remember when we went to Star Commonwealth thinking of Sidney Farber. But the other Sidney, it reminds me of, is Sidney Banks, who's important in our history, a philosopher and thinker who created and shared something called the Three Principles. And he told a story about being told by a friend that there's nothing wrong with you. You just think there's something wrong with you. And I was thinking of that as Elizabeth was talking about the idea that we all have this innate well-being and we all have love inside of us. And I might be opening us up for an hour-long conversation, but I'm, I'm up for it <laughs> if you are. So that's my pitch. Yeah. I'm throwing that right at you. Swing at that thing. Yeah. I think what I'm, I love the reminder of the two Sydneys, Sydney Banks, his work around mind consciousness and thought and how our thinking creates feeling. And we live in the feeling of our thinking, but we're always tuned in to mind, he calls it. You can call it like the, universal intelligence, whatever word it is. But the principle is this idea that you're always connected to wisdom. And that wisdom lies within each one of us. When I cross paths with the three principles in his work, it literally changed my life around remembering my wholeness. And it's something that like remembering that I'm always tuned in, like I actually can trust that my wisdom, my innate well-being is always on and I always have access to it. And it's personal and it's very specific for the, the challenge or the question I'm struggling with. That ethos, that belief in wholeness, that belief that we are innately well not only was new in the 1900s, it's new in the 20th century. Like in 2021, truthfully, when we are doing a lot of medical intervention on the opposite side of believing that we're innately well, or the messages of control or disempowerment that we're all part of, it reminds us and it kind of sneaks us away from that sense that actually I'm enough, I'm worthy, I'm okay, regardless of what's happening, I'm gonna be okay. And that I have the resources, the health, the well being, the vitality to be resilient, 
to overcome and to thrive. I'm so struck at the intentionality of what they choose to focus on at STAR. And that idea that there's no such thing as a bad boy or a bad human, that everybody has innate wellness and wholeness and worthiness to be here is such a refreshing, positive mindset. And it's no wonder that their mission is to lead with courage, Mm -hmm. to create positive experiences so children and families can flourish. And we all need that. Like, what if I could see my children and see myself and see my spouse and friends and you always through that lens that you are well, you are whole. And what does that do when I'm seen that way? That I'm not broken. I don't have to be fixed. I don't have to find the next solution or pill that I could actually be supported in that belief. Like what would our schools be like? What would our communities be like? And one of the things along this thread that really struck me, and I'm just going to, we'll have to replay it to hear the exact quote that Derek used from, I think the psychologist that he referenced, but that idea that we all need somebody to irrationally care about ourselves. Yeah. Great. Great. What an amazing concept, right? Of like, Every child, every human needs that feeling to be irrationally cared for. Like that to me, it is unconditional love, but there's some sass to it that makes me think about how am I doing that for my loved ones and my friends and my community and plenty? Like how am I irrationally caring about them? And it's not an intellectual thing. So lots of response. There's more to unpack there. But what struck you about that quote? It was well, just so yummy. What, I mean, I love where Elizabeth took it right at the end. I mean, we could have spent 45 minutes just on the idea of strategy starts with taking care of the people around us. But do we allow ourselves to irrationally love ourselves? Right. right? Yeah. Can we apply that unconditional love to ourselves? And You know, I said at the beginning before we brought Elizabeth and Derek on that the content might not resonate. And and so think about the commonalities. And and here I am diving into the content. But that idea of trauma-informed care so resonates with plenty. I think we got really captivated by what they do, as we have with City of Hope, as we did with Amr Sports. But, you know, it's a very inside-out approach. And to pull back to what we just talked to them about, That's what I love about Meridian is it's an inside out approach to strategy, right? Even though, and it's why we asked him about, you know, you have this strong history. So why did you need help again? You know, Elizabeth is a chief strategy officer. Why did you reach out for strategy help? Because they had this knowing that our own image might be holding us back, which ironically is what they do in their work. Like their work isn't to say trauma didn't happen, ignore it, make it go away. Like, no, bad things happen in our lives, but we don't have to be totally defined by those. And I think that's what I really appreciated about Meridian as we've done it now five years, Jen, with dozens and dozens, I don't know, it might be a hundred clients at this point, is even the groups like Star who say, no, 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 we totally got our values. We totally have our history. You know, we ask them to come on a journey. And I love that Derek said, I wasn't quite sure where you were taking me. 
because we just say like, well, what would happen if you look at it again? And here, I love that Elizabeth volunteered without any prepping from us that, yeah, well, once they looked, they realized, no, those aren't our values. Those are like Arthur Anderson's values. Like, how do we come up with something that's us? And when we look inside first, even though we want to look out here, there is such a rich landscape that opens up. So I'll bounce it back to you. But I, I loved that they made these connections about inside out work with children and the inside out work that we're doing with them. It just felt so rewarding to hear that connection. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, the highest compliment anybody could pay us, Derek just did. They both did. But for Derek to genuinely say, my life was transformed as a result of that process, that ideally fulfills you and I, fulfills our life path of helping people really reach their fullest potential. And our strategy work with companies and businesses who really want to make this world a better place, large and small, that inside approach changes yourself. It has the potential to, if you're buying and you're really looking at what you deeply care about, we're evolving each one of us as human beings so fast. And as the world turns and as we kind of move through this paradigm shift, time is speeding up, information is happening at a quickening pace. And so it must be that we're changing too. And so it must mean that actually our values change. What matters most to us in the moment evolves and having the willingness to see that with fresh eyes and then how they went about actually making sure that that was the veins of the organization that was sending the life force through the employees and staff who were not part of the process feels so incredible. And that's what sustains. We're seeing this in our work that the organizations and companies that are really not willing to slow down to really take a look at their identity now in post-COVID or during COVID times, who are we now? What are we really here to do? How are we serving people and the planet in a harmonious way that's aligned to what we care about and what we're great at. When we don't answer those questions, we are going to get blown around in the ocean by the changing current and by the changing winds and by the storms that are continuing to come. Derek's analogy that the blueprint that is the outcome of Meridian really was their anchor. It was what their touchstone, you could say it was their compass that helped them know where to go when, what to do and what not to do. And that to me feels like we're living our blueprint. When we can help organizations and the people within them really consciously create an intentional purpose-driven plan that aligns to who they are personally and aligns to the business they work for or work with, that is congruence, that's fulfillment. That's alignment and that's power. And that power is sustainable. And so I just, I hope we have them back because there's so much to unpack, not only about the process, but really about the times we're living in 
to tee it back up to you is, is that Derek left us with a quotable quote around what they're seeing, not only with children and schools, but in communities nationwide is that we are on the cusp of a tsunami of trauma, post-traumatic stress from what we've all lived through in COVID. So what does that care look like? Like, how do we help each other heal in that lens? And would love to hear your thoughts about it. Like their tagline is driven to heal. And so how they can continue to lead the way in this market and this need of a, a tsunami of trauma, I think is fascinating to watch. Well, it's two thoughts on that, which probably in my way is like four thoughts, but I'll try to make it two thoughts. One, Jen, we were just in conversation with a PR firm that we're working with who is giving us coaching on how to talk to the press. And honestly, it's not always coaching we want because you, you get pressed on questions like, you know, okay, exp- but you have to explain why well-being is needed. <laughs> it's kind of like, geez, do we? I mean, <laughs> I mean <Right>. really? <laughs> like, if we have to explain it, like, maybe that's not the right audience for us. But so, so just to kind of to go with the process and be good students, we looked up, it takes about three seconds to find a 4,000 depressing statistics about the level of trauma in the country. And I think we were just looking at one statistic of something like almost 80% of Americans in December said they've never been more pessimistic about the state of the country. Like, oh my goodness, you talk about that tsunami that's coming. And so the other thought that's related to that thought is, I also think they gave a roadmap that everyone who comes to us asks us for like it's some secret sauce about, okay, well, how do we create transformational change? And we're always basically like, well, it's super easy. You get every single person in the organization completely and totally fired up. And then you get all your customers fired up too. And (laughs) that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like just create meaningful connection between every single person and the work. It's really easy to describe and it's really, really hard to do. But that's it, right? The work is helping people make that happen. And it, like, if you want the silver bullet, that's it. Can every person in the organization meaningfully say they care about what they do? And once you really start to answer that question, for most groups we talk to, the answer is no. And not only is it no, it's the person, like the executive themselves that we're talking to, are you meaningfully connected to the work you do? Well, no, I'm not, right? Yeah. How do we get other people? I'll let you get in here. But so, of course, people don't care because we don't care. Like, and so the, the re-believe, as we call it, is coming inside out. Well, what do we all care about? What do you care about? What's here that we could care about? But Jen, just yesterday, we were on the phone with an organization of what, 6,000 people? And they were saying, well, none of the staff want to do this work and none of them care about our campaign. And well, what does work? Oh, when the leaders are personally involved, right? When people have a personal connection, right? So we have to find that personal relevance to what we're doing. So I'm all over the place. I realize I'll I'll throw- No, they're wonderful points. And I think that's what purpose-driven strategy is. And when you say inside out, like we literally mean we ask you to personally share. Like that's the juice of finding out what your team members, your colleagues, your board, your leadership 
personally cares about that connects to the personal care of the brand or of the cause. When we make that connection, it sparks intrinsic motivation where you don't have to tell somebody what they need to care about. One story that Derek told that I loved day two or day three, when the staff, the executive staff and the board started to engage really personally. And I was so touched when he said, we, we say, I still have the flip charts because I remember when those old values that were like, we treat everyone fairly and, you know, <laughs> we use integrity. I mean, they literally could have been values that you saw at a bank, nothing wrong with them, but nothing great about them either. When people started to engage personally, and there's a, there's a lesson here that I wanted to make, or I think Elizabeth made for us, which is don't be afraid to include people. These are board members in their case, like most board members are busy. They're running businesses. They're sitting on multiple boards. They have tons of stuff to do. And they gave four days to be in this process. And they were giddy as school kids when they were thinking about, they were into it when they were yeah. parsing through language and crossing out the old values and making their new values. And the part and parcel of that too is not being afraid of skepticism. When Derek said like, I looked at you guys the first day and was thinking like, I do this work and who are these people and what? And I feel like it's not always easy to be in those situations, Jen, but I think we have learned that that skepticism is such an opportunity. Like, it's like, okay, that Derek in the room, I just like, that person gives us 30 minutes. I know that they're skeptical because they care. That care, I'd so much rather have skepticism than apathy of someone who just couldn't care less. Yeah, I mean, I think just to wrap up, I'm just so moved by their modeling and modeling the behaviors of what comes to life in their services, their online curriculum, their training, their residential, their ways about going about teaching trauma and resilience care. I'm just so moved by their willingness to walk the talk. And that is so needed in the world right now. It just is to really be the the solvent and the antidote to skepticism when you can see somebody embodying those those principles of purpose and passion. I think what strikes me on two things you were talking about is always asking ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? What is the better world we see as a result of living on purpose? Like what could trauma-informed care and resilience training do? At the end of the day, why are we doing it? What's the end result? And it's the same thing with the cancer movements, our cancer clients and hospitals. Like what is the end result? What's the highest possibility on offer? And when we ask that, we then align to something that's greater than ourselves. And that in itself is motivating that that could be possible. That is why we're doing what we're doing. And oftentimes we miss the why. And it's so important for executives and business managers and conscious leaders to continue articulating their why, their care with vulnerability, with personal conviction. And we saw that come to life with the board chair of STAR that we had the pleasure of talking with 
this past week on a board kickoff call with them, the tone he set, the quality of the intention of the board meeting us and what we were doing and why were we doing it rippled throughout the whole meeting. It set the essence, it set the container, it set the what was viable in that moment of discovery. To bring that all the way back to what I think STAR does great is fundamentally their belief that everybody is whole. This idea that we believe everybody essentially wants to be seen, heard, and treated as whole human beings. When we do that, we involve more people. We listen better. And when you and I have done that in our discovery and set up that first phase of our client work, it's the most valuable conversations because we're able to extract a theme, an essence. And guess what happens? As we all know, every single person that was engaged in that process feels connected and committed to the conversation. They feel a part of. And the millennials know this. The younger generations are begging to be involved. But how do we make the time on all spectrums of leadership to involve the right people, to give them a voice, to co-create what the purpose is, what our involvement is, what our highest possibility is now. And I think Star's just done a phenomenal job at modeling that way. Yeah, lovely points. And more to come, I think. This is now, I don't know if we're at three hours, but <laughs> it feels like, okay, we're full. But thanks for listening. What a great set of guests we've had. We have more guests coming in the next few episodes and a few episodes of the two of us kind of unpacking what we've what we've learned already this year. And those are always fun for us too. Thank you for being here. If you got something out of this podcast, we'd love your rating on whatever service you listen to us on. And more than that, we'd love if you shared it with someone else. We've learned through the podcast, just like everything else at Plenty, it starts with a little ripple and it spreads outward. And it's been really gratifying to see how our podcast has grown. Thanks to people like you who are listening and sharing it. So if you found something valuable, we hope you share it with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about Star Commonwealth, you can visit star, S-T-A-R dot org. And if you are interested in learning more about Meridian, the process that we just spoke about, you can learn more at plentyconsulting.com. We'll see you all soon. Thank you so much. Bye, gang. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at www.plentyconsulting.com.